Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. There is the story of a taxpayer who needed to ease his conscience. So here's what he wrote to the IRS. He said, I haven't been able to sleep well for about two years. So here is my check for $1,200 in back taxes. The man even signed his name and then he added a short PS to the end of the note that said, if I don't sleep better in a week, I'll send you another $1,200. Well, here was a man who recognized that he needed to do something to relieve his guilt, but he didn't want to do too much. And he's actually not alone. Back in 1811, the U.S. government began collecting all of these letters and they started storing all these letters that were written into them of people that would write in feeling guilty about how they've treated our government. The Treasury Department actually even established a fund and they called it the Conscience Fund that has grown to over $7 million dollars. Here's another one written on February 6th of 1974. It said, I'm sending $10 for the blankets I stole while I was in World War II. My mind could not rest. Sorry, I am late. And it was signed in XGI. And then there was this postscript at the end. It said, I want to be ready to meet God. Well, the good news of Hebrews chapter 9 is that as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the capacity to walk before a holy and righteous God with a clean conscience. Paul himself even said this. Remember, he said, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, we have a deep, deep text before us this morning, and having a clear conscience before God is just one of the principles that we're going to find here. Watch how we begin in Hebrews 9. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now, remember with me what we'd been talking about in chapter 8, about the two different tabernacles, the heavenly structure, the heavenly tabernacle, and the earthly tent. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author is about to break this down for us a little more in detail. And throughout this text, what you need to know is that the author is assuming that the Hebrew believers reading this already knew about all how the tabernacle had been built. In all throughout this text, the author is pulling constantly from Leviticus 16. And so what is he telling the Christians in verse 1? He's saying it is a point of reminder that the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was joined to the sacrificial system. And the ordinances of divine service to God took place in the earthly sanctuary. This is where the Old Testament priests serve God, but it was limited. It was limited to down here on earth. It didn't reach into the presence of God in heaven. The tabernacle 
was rich. The tabernacle was beautiful. The furniture was covered with gold. The walls were fine linen dyed in the different colors. You remember scarlet, blue, and purple. But the floor was nothing but the desert sand, which served as a reminder to the priests that they served God here on earth. Now, this is the structure of the tabernacle. It was basically divided into two rooms. The first room was where the priests served daily, referred to in verse 2 of your text as the sanctuary. It was the holy place dedicated to the worship of the God of Israel. And only the priests could enter into that room. The ordinary believer, Jew or Gentile, had no access to it. And the author tells us that in this first room was the lampstand made of pure gold, taken from one solid piece. Wouldn't you like to have that solid piece of gold? Now, the lampstand was designed to be a perpetual reminder that the redeemed nation was to be a light to the world. And across this room was a table with 12 loaves of bread or cakes, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. This bread, if you remember from your New Testament studies, it foreshadowed the Messiah who would come as the bread of life, intended to show us something, intended to show us that spiritual life can only come through fellowship with God, that God's presence is what sustains us. But behind the veil was another room, verse 3. It says, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Now, the two rooms, of course, were separated by a veil, referred to in the text in verse 3 as the second veil. Why does it say it that way? Well, because you had to go through one veil to get into the first room, the holy place. And then you had to go through the second veil to get into the second room, known as the holy of holies. And it is here that God chose to manifest his presence. Holy, set apart. Why? Because of the holiness of God. In verse 4, it mentions to us the golden censer. Some of your translations may mention a golden altar of incense. I really believe it should be the golden censer because there's a difference between the two. The altar of incense was not in the Holy of Holies. It was just outside the veil. But here the author is actually talking about this censer. See, what would happen is every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would fill the censer with burning coals of fire from the altar of incense. And then it was brought inside the veil, into the Holy of Holies. And the incense was to represent the act of offering prayer, that God would accept the sacrifices offered to cover the sins of the nation. And the purpose of the incense was to create a screen which would prevent the high priest from gazing upon the holy presence of God himself. But in the Holy of Holies, the biggest item, of course, was what? The Ark of the Covenant, a chest that was made of wood and covered with pure gold. And it was almost four feet long, not quite, two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet high. 
And inside the ark, we know that there was three objects that had a, a rich connection with Israel's history. First, we are told that there was a golden pot containing manna because it served as a reminder that God had provided this food for Israel as they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, if you ever wondered to yourself what this stuff was like, Exodus 16, 31 actually teaches us. It says, and the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And so they kept a pot of this manna, just as God had commanded them to be a reminder to them of his love, of his care, of his provision. And so the chest, the Ark of the Covenant, also had in it Aaron's rod that had budded. Now, this goes back to number 16. I'll let you guys read that at home. But this goes back to the rebellion of Korah when he led that uprising against both Moses and Aaron. And if you remember what happened there in that text, Moses put 12 rods within the tabernacle and each rod had a tribal name upon it. And Aaron's name was written upon the rod that was assigned to Levi. And God caused the rod of Aaron to bud, to bloom. And then God instructed Moses to keep the rod in the ark as a testimony that God had chosen Aaron to be the high priest. Now, the ark also had the tablets of the covenant within it, written by God himself on two stones and placed in the ark. A reminder to Israel that they were under God's law. Verse 5, it tells us, And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. On the top of the ark, was the mercy seat. Now this was sprinkled with the blood of sacrifice on the day of atonement, the blood of an innocent substitute rather than the blood of the guilty. And over the mercy seat were the two cherubim made of gold designed to represent the glory of God himself. Now, this was actually very central to the worship of Israel. Do you remember God himself? He promised in Exodus 25, verse 22, he said this, and there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above where? The mercy seat from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. You see, God promised to meet his people at the mercy seat, and he did. This is where, if you remember from the Old Testament, this is where God made his presence known. This is where the Shekinah cloud came to rest upon the mercy seat. Now, certainly God is omnipresent, but he did choose to manifest his glorious presence in this place. And this is why access to the Holy of Holies was limited. And the lampstand, if you understand the, the picture of the tabernacle that is given to us, the lampstand illuminated the first part of it, the first room of the tabernacle. But the second part, the inner room, the Holy of Holies, this was illuminated by the glorious presence of God himself. But the details of the tabernacle... We're not the focus of the text in Hebrews, even though the temple was still standing when this letter to the Hebrews was written. The ark was actually not there. 
Now, we know from the Old Testament that the ark survived the journey through the wilderness, the battles of Joshua's time. It survived all that. It survived the dark days of the judges. And at one point, you guys remember, it was even captured by the Philistines. And at the dedication of the temple, it was placed in the Holy of Holies by Solomon. And it remained there for many, many years. Now, the rabbis, they used to teach that it disappeared at the time of the early prophets. And there was a tradition that Jeremiah is the one that hid it. Some say today that it's down in Ethiopia, resting in a church where the guardian of the ark is the only person who is allowed to see it. Others would like to claim that it's hidden beneath Jerusalem in a tunnel beneath the site of the crucifixion. And according to this story, during the earthquake that followed the death of Christ, it is said to have split the rocks. And we know that part is true, of course. But it is said to have made a crack that connected the site of the crucifixion and the chamber containing the ark. And then Christ's blood is then said to have dripped down 60 feet through the crack, falling onto the mercy seat, just like the animal sacrifices hundreds and hundreds of years before. Great stories. Great, great stories. Probably not a lot of truth to them. The ark was not in the rebuilt temple of Herod. And the scriptures never mention that the glory and presence of God ever returned to his temple. I've told some of you the story that when we first came to Anchorage, back in the days before your phone could just give you directions anywhere you want to go, after having traveled all day, Angie hates this story, but after having traveled all day, we'd been up almost 30 hours, Angie and I were in a rental car, and we were having one of those marriage moments, because she is sitting there holding the map, trying to give me directions, and with her her head down, looking at the map, she is insisting very adamantly that we go left. We must go left. But I'm driving and I'm looking left and I'm looking at the armed guard sitting at the gate of Jaber. He was giving me a slightly different message. Now, we could go anywhere on that map that we wanted to go in Anchorage, but we did not have access to the base. Well, later that year, a remarkable thing happened. It was Arctic thunder. And the one day when they open up the gates and let anyone onto the base to see the air show. Now we could go through that same exact gate on that one day of the year. And that is what the author of Hebrews is about to tell us, that only once a year could the high priest of Israel go into the Holy of Holies. Watch our text. Pick it up with verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, watch this, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now, remember that basically the tabernacle, it was a tent. It was a tent that could be picked up and moved as the people traveled throughout the wilderness. So after it was set up, the priests could go into the first room, the holy place. They could serve there every day, lighting the lampstand in the evening, trimming the wicks down in the morning, burning incense on the altar during the sacrifices. 
And the priests could really go no further. They could not go into the Holy of Holies. And if they went in, if they even just lifted the veil and sort of peeked in, it would have been instant death for them. Forbidden by God to even draw near. But only the high priest could go into that second chamber, the Holy of Holies, on one day of year, the Day of Atonement. It was a day when the national guilt of the people was dealt with. And the high priest would actually go in there two times on that day. The first time he would go in to sprinkle the blood of a bull upon the mercy seat to atone for his own personal sins. And then the second time would be to sprinkle the blood of a goat on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the nation. But notice that these were for the sins of the people that were committed, it says, in ignorance. Now, sin is still sin. It doesn't matter if you do it in ignorance or not, whether you intend to do it or not. But if it was unintentional, a sacrifice was offered once a year on the Day of Atonement for it. Now, this was an earthly tabernacle, so the work was never finished. The sacrifices never brought permanent access to God. And here comes the broader point of the text, starting in verse 8, that underneath the Mosaic Covenant, access to God was limited, but the heavenly tabernacle is always open to the people of God. It says, starting in verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating us that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Now, this is one of these texts. I don't want you to get lost in the weeds as we walk through this because the point is actually very, very powerful. You see, the author is telling us that the Holy Spirit of God was intending to teach us something. The Holy Spirit of God is intending to teach us that the Levitical system did not provide access for the ordinary believer. The holiest of all in verse 8. Now that is actually God's throne in heaven. And the first tabernacle is the tabernacle built in the wilderness and the temples that followed in Jerusalem. Now these earthly temples could not give you or I access to God. The old covenant system of worship did not meet the deepest need of God's people because it didn't provide an intimate personal relationship with God. Believers could not come into the presence of God. So what was the purpose of all that? What was the purpose of all of that if people could not get into the presence of God? Well, the author tells us in verses 9 and 10, it was symbolic. It was an illustration of a spiritual truth. You see, the gifts, the sacrifices offered, the food, the drink, the washings, they pointed to God until a better system would be put in place by God until the time of Reformation. Now, notice these words at the end of verse 9. They actually could not be more important to our faith that these outward acts cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. You see, the Mosaic Covenant had provision for sins of ignorance. 
but not for premeditated sins done in complete opposition and rejection of God, and not for the sin nature of man. The old system was lacking. It didn't completely reconcile the people to God. The old covenant was mostly about the externals, but the externals are secondary to that inward reality with God. It is a relationship with God that purifies the conscience. So this is why you can have someone go through all the outward acts, saying all the right things, doing all the right things, but still not have a conscience that is right with God. Because if your conscience is stained with sin, it keeps you out of fellowship with God. Now, the Day of Atonement, the greatest festival of the Jewish year, it showed the limitation of the priesthood under the Old Covenant. The external worship of the tabernacle could not perfect a person before God. The animal sacrifices could never remove the personal guilt of their sins. And the people, they knew this. Their conscience reminded them of their guilt before God. And the Mosaic system, we know, of course, from looking at Hebrews before this, that it could not bring the people to maturity. It could not provide a permanent cleansing from the guilt of sin. See, God could still forgive the people, but this is talking about the guilt of sin. The tabernacle and the temples were designed by God, literally, the text is telling us, as a parable, as a point of teaching, looking forward to the future when Jesus Christ would come. It was all planned that way. It taught that the way into God's immediate presence was not yet open to man. The sacrifices could not cleanse the conscience. They could not produce spiritual life, but they pointed to the Savior who could. Maybe you heard about the kids lined up in the cafeteria for lunch at a Christian school. And at the head of the table was a large pile of apples. And the teacher had inscribed a little note there that said, take only one. God is watching. But at the other end of the table was a large pile of chocolate chip cookies. And so one of the boys, his name was Walter. He wrote a note and he said, take all you want because God is watching the apples. We tend to think that way, don't we? we? We tend to think that way. And I think, honestly, some people just have a clear conscience before God because they have a bad memory. But the author of Hebrews is telling us that as God's people, because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished, we can walk with a clear conscience before a holy God. Now, how is this all possible? The author of Hebrews has been building, and he's about to tell us in our next few verses. Let's read it. He says, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Do you remember the teaching of Matthew chapter 27. It says that when Jesus died, that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. 
See, when Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom and the way was opened up into the Holy of Holies. And there was no more need for this holy place. There was no more need for the inner room, the Holy of Holies, because the redeemed man of God could now come boldly into the very presence of God. There was no more need for the earthly tabernacle because Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father in the perfect tabernacle in heaven. A tabernacle that's made without hands, not built by men. And he serves there now as our great high priest of the good things to come, which includes this direct access to God. And the point of verse 12 is that blood is a symbol of life. The blood of sacrificial animals, the blood of goats and calves were a temporary sin offering, but Christ was a perfect offering for us. He paid for our redemption. His sacrificial blood means there's no more need for these Levitical offerings of the Old Testament. His sacrifice, it never needs to be repeated because Christ is perfect. Christ was able to enter God's presence on our behalf once and for all. Millions of animal sacrifices were fulfilled in one climatic sacrifice of Jesus as our Savior. His shed blood gives us access to God, and he is able to bring his people to spiritual perfection through his redemptive work. Now, the words of Leviticus 17.11 should come to mind. It says there, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. See, animals have blood. Humans have blood. But angels and God do not, because God is spirit. You and I are both physical and spiritual. And what God is saying in Leviticus is that the life of the person in the body is through the blood. And this is why only blood can atone for the soul. And this is why God had to become a man in order to achieve our redemption, because he had no blood within his divine nature to shed. He had no blood to shed, but Christ has made the full payment for our sins, releasing us forever from the debt that we owe to God. But what was the purpose? How could the blood of bulls and goats make any difference in man's ability to approach God? Well, I think the answer is much the same as when a country has their currency backed by gold. All in itself, the paper printed by a government is absolutely worthless. But if it is backed by gold, then that paper now has value. Why? Because the paper represents the gold. And I think that's what we're looking at with the Old Testament sacrifices. On their own, they really didn't have much of a purpose or a value, but they were backed by the genuine blood of Christ's atonement. And that is the currency that is being used because God is no longer accepting these Old Testament sacrifices. You know, during the Civil War, many of the Southern banks carried on business with Confederate notes. And those promissory notes are now absolutely worthless. You can't use them to go and try to repay a debt. 
And that is what the author is teaching us here in Hebrews. He's saying, why would you try to go back to paying debts with the old promissory notes that only had any value because they were backed by the blood of Jesus Christ? You see, the old covenant sacrificial system had a time, it had a place, it had a purpose. It was established for the nation of Israel until the coming of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And it kept them centered on the reality of their own sin. And it kept them centered on their need for salvation. But the author of Hebrews is reminding us that there is nothing you can do on the externals, externally, that can cleanse a guilty conscience before God. And so our last two verses, he tells us, starting in verse 13, he says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, here we are, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice the huge contrast that is in this text between the animal sacrifices on the Day of Atonement and the sacrifice of the Savior. The blood of bulls and goats, these were the sacrifices made on the Day of Atonement meant to atone for the sins of the people. The ashes of a heifer were mixed with water. This is what they would use to cleanse a person who had become defiled by touching a dead body. Animal sacrifices were for the ceremonies of the Mosaic sacrificial system. They could cleanse the outer man of guilt, but they could not. They could not change the heart. They couldn't purify a person's heart. They were for outward defilement. They gave an outer cleansing. But the need of the sinner is far deeper than just the externals. And that is where the blood of Jesus Christ comes in. And if you ever wanted to understand why the sacrifice of bulls and of goats could never be enough, why they could never satisfy the demands of a holy God, remember that all the animals of creation are under the curse of sin. No perfect sacrifice without sin could ever be given, but Christ, he offered himself up for us. Because holy and without sin, he was, as the writer describes, without spot. Because the blood of Christ cleanses the inner self. You see, the animals, they didn't have a choice, but Christ, he did, and he offered himself up for us. And this ritualistic system of the Mosaic law, it was dead because it could not cause a person to pass from spiritual death to life. And the defilement that we face, it's internal. You see, the author is talking about the internal part of us that makes us painfully aware of our own sin and our guilt before a holy God. Christ's death has the power to purify a person's mind and soul to free us of the guilt that has plagued us, that held us down and kept men coming back year after year after year to offer another sacrifice in the temple. The dead works referred to here. This is the rituals of the Mosaic law. Those could never free us from the guilt. The Mosaic law could not impart new life. You see, only the death of Christ can remove the penalty and guilt of man and replace it with his love and peace. And Christ did exactly just this for us, didn't he? Not just so that we could get a ticket to heaven, but so that we could be cleansed from dead works. Notice the end of the verse to serve the living God. 
You see, the author is telling us the Mosaic law has passed. So quit trying to put yourself back under it. Instead, hold on to the cleansing that we have in Jesus Christ, because it is his work in our lives, which frees us to live a life that is based on his amazing grace, a life that is based on his love, a life dedicated to serving him. You know, I really believe that God doesn't want his people walking around living under this guilt and this condemnation. He wants his people to know their sin has been forgiven, totally paid for at the cross. He wants his people to be free to serve him because when the guilt is gone, service to Christ can begin. NPR ran a heartbreaking interview with Bob Ebeling. Bob was an engineer who worked on the 1986 Challenger launch that resulted in the death of all seven on board. And in January of 1986, Bob and four of the other engineers, they actually went to NASA. They pleaded for the launch to be delayed because they anticipated the precise exact failure that happened that would destroy the shuttle. That night, Bob even told his wife, Darlene, he said to her before they went to bed, it's going to blow up. But people at NASA were not listening. Bob retired soon after the Challenger explosion. He suffered from deep, deep depression and was never able to lift the burden of his guilt for 30 years. In 1986, as he watched the haunting image again being replayed on a television screen, he said this, he said, I could have done more. I should have done more. And he was interviewed again just a few years back, shortly before he passed on. And there he sat, this broken old man in his living room with watery, teary eyes and a stern face, still talking about the science, still talking about the data and the arguments that he had presented to NASA and how they weren't enough. And Bob came to a horrible conclusion. He said that, he was inadequate, that maybe it was on him, that he didn't argue the data well enough. He said he actually even prayed about it for 30 years. And then he told reporters, I think that this was one of the mistakes that God made. He shouldn't have picked me for the job. But next time I talk to him, I'm gonna ask, why me? Because you picked a loser. Every one of us has lived with our own regrets and our own failures, and our own sin. And as a pastor, I will tell you this, it is one of the most heartbreaking parts of ministry because when people reach the end of their days on earth, the pride of man finally gets set aside and people get honest. People get real honest. They get honest about their guilt. They get honest about how they wish they would have spent more of their life and more of their time living to serve Jesus Christ. People get real honest, honest about their regrets, because what happens at death? Death exposes the true nature of sin. See, God uses death much the same as he used the law, because in the hands of God, they both serve to break through our denial and prod us to turn to Christ for relief from the sting of death, for relief from the guilt, and to find our purpose for living. I wonder how many Christians really believe that God has forgiven us. You see, maybe we know it here. Maybe we know it in our thoughts, but it's not a felt reality. 
Hebrews promises us something. Hebrews promises us a better rest. And I want you to walk away from this text being impressed with the mercy of God. He's not shocked by anything you do. His forgiveness is real. Know that our sin has been nailed to the cross, never to be brought up again. My sin, your sin, past, present, and future has been paid in full on the cross of Jesus the Christ. And this is why we read the words in Hebrews 10. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And then what comes when a believer draws near to God in assurance of faith? What happens when we let the cleansing and forgiveness found in Christ wash our guilt away? Then we are ready for verse 24 of that text where we are told, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Find the forgiveness that has been given to you, believer in Christ, and may his mercy and his grace forever lead you to serve Him. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.